everyone, welcome back to another episode of Compiler with your hosts, Serbi and Maddie. In today's episode, we're discussing the importance of diversity in tech companies, but more importantly, how to ensure that those pushing these initiatives are properly rewarded and supported. We're so lucky to have Leia Colagato here for today's episode. Leia is a software engineer at Google, Stanford computer science grad, but most importantly, is a public-facing diversity and inclusion advocate who founded Women of Silicon Valley in 2015, a Humans of New York-like spin-off that features resilient women and gender-queer folks in tech, particularly those of color. Leia was even featured in BBC's 100 Inspiring Women list of 2017 for her work on Women of Silicon Valley. Leia, so happy to have you with us today. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So we actually first heard about Leia from a Medium piece that she wrote that was widely shared amongst online communities of women in tech. The piece detailed a story of workplace harassment, but also led us to discovering Leia's impactful DEI work. Leia, would you mind sharing your story with our listeners? Of course. Um, I'll start with where I was born and raised. I'm from Dallas, Texas, and I like to always share that my mom is a refugee from Vietnam and my dad is a first-born, first-generation Filipino-American. Um, everyone asks how we ended up in Dallas, Texas, and the answer is a lot of Vietnamese refugees uh, were put into refugee camps in Arkansas, which is close to Dallas. And my dad's parents came from the Philippines because the U.S. had this trade agreement where basically if medical students would come and provide in underserved areas, um, that they would get a free citizenship. Um, and so my dad's parents ended up in the panhandle of Texas, which has even fewer uh, Filipinos than Dallas. But um, after high school, I went to Stanford University and I graduated with a degree in computer science. Today, I'm a software engineer at Google Maps and I specifically lead the effort to make desktop maps accessible to users with disabilities. That's awesome. Um, and, you know, your first story that we had read on Medium was about kind of the workplace harassment that you had faced when you were working full time. Could you tell us a little bit about what happened there and maybe kind of some of the fallout from that those conversations? Of course. So uh, my experience with sexual harassment definitely did not start when I was in full time positions. Uh, most of my friends, they've had their first run ins with sexual harassment or even assault when they were only students in school. But um, essentially, as soon as I started working full time, I commute from San Francisco down to South Bay. And I noticed there was this guy on the bus who was um, definitely using it as his like personal Tinder account. Um, I noticed that he had noticed a few other Asian women on the bus and would like make it a habit of asking them out or staring at them uh, very unsolicitedly. And so one day, inevitably, he chose me as his victim. And <laughs> we had a really long bus drive back from work up to San Francisco because there was like an oil spill. The commute lasted three hours. Um, th this man is much older, by the way. I think he's probably like at least 20 years my senior, um, he got on the bus, saw me, and then made a beeline for the seat that was right next to me. And then for the 
entire duration of this three hour bus drive, he stared at my feet. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm an engineer, so I believe in rigorous testing. And so I was like, I'm gonna move my foot to see if this guy's uh, line of vision moves with me. And sure enough, I would move my foot up and down and his head would be bobbing up and down. Um, he finally tapped me on the arm and he let me know, I love your shoes. And I, I'm pretty sure he meant my feet because my shoes were not were not that interesting. And so um, I found out from some other friends who took the bus that he had also asked them out and there was also a noticeable age difference. And it was pretty clear that this guy, he had a method for targeting his type. And so I thought nothing of it. And I began to notice throughout the year that I started running into him more and more. So got to the point where I would like avoid taking the bus. I would avoid getting on my bus back to work just so that he wouldn't stare at me. I, I remember that one day I walked into the office and I saw that he was in the building. And I was like, you have to be fucking kidding me. Like, if, if you've been to the Google campus, it's huge. And like the idea that he got into my building, it just seemed, after all of these instances, um, uncoincidental. And so I reported it to HR and, you know, my HR representative, she was pressing for, do you have any direct evidence? Do you have someone else who can back you up? And at the time I didn't because I wasn't going to like pull out my phone and record him every time he came and sat and stared at me. And so she said, if you choose to pursue an investigation, you can choose to go that route, but we're going to talk to him, pull him into an investigation, and, and confirm with him whether he's done it. Which in my mind, I was like, there is no incentive for this man to confirm that he's been following um, an Asian woman for a year and trying to stare at her. And so I, I feel like this information is going to be immediately identifiable as soon as you tell him he's going to know it's me. And so I, I obviously vouched not to file the investigation, and a couple months later, he was moved to my room. So this man was like, I want to say less than 30 feet away from me. Um, I went to HR again, I said, how did this happen? Like, did no one put on file that I have complained about this guy? And they said that basically because I had elected not to do a full investigation, that they chose um, nothing basically was material on my file that this man had been creepy to me and it wasn't affecting any seating charts. Long story short, um, I just couldn't take it anymore. I felt like this guy was staring at me all the time, and I, more than that, I wasn't even like that perturbed by the dude. I was just so disappointed and crestfallen that these people at work who were supposed to take care of me failed me so miserably. Throughout the HR investigations, I felt like there was no humanity there was no acknowledgement for how scary it is to have this ex happen to you, especially when you're not on campus, where you're around people that you don't know. I was really lucky that I had a manager at the time who did everything within her material power to help me, like she even offered to switch desks, but I was just so disillusioned by this HR system that kind of protected the perpetrators effectively by putting all the onus and all the burden on the survivor to produce evidence, to put their safety on the line. Um, it, it was just so unjust. So I was able to find a team in the San Francisco office and um, 
with that physical distance from the dude, I was able to finally recuperate my mental state. But I, after like a year of therapy and feeling like I was in a place to to process everything had happened, that I had like, I basically lost a job because of how the company handled someone who was being super creepy to me. Um, I decided to write about it. And I don't know if y'all remember, but this was during the whole uh, women's walkouts times. And I was far, I am far from the only person in tech who has had uh, the company effectively side with the perpetrator by giving the survivor really shit options. And so I think because of the timing, my article went really viral. A lot of people felt and resonated with my experience. A lot of people contacted me having worse experiences. Yeah, well, Leah, first of all, thank you so much for sharing. And, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry that you've had these unfortunate experiences and that also, you know, this is something that many women in tech can relate to. Um, and your story definitely helped expose a gap in the channels for reporting workplace harassment um, and really struck a nerve in terms of relatability for women in tech. And so since, as you mentioned, this piece got a lot of traction online and people shared their own experiences with you, I'm kind of curious if there are any insights from some of the reactions to your story. Yeah, thank you so much for asking. Um, a huge insight that I took away from it is by me sharing my piece live as an individual, I really put myself in a compromised position because as you can guess, as soon as the piece went viral, HR started knocking on my door, um, trying to, you know, I, they effectively didn't want me to write about any of my other perpetrators, which I have had at um, my current company. It's a very isolating experience and so what I wish I knew then that I know now because people come came forward and told me to is to organize, join a group of people. I mean, there are so many people in tech who've been sexually harassed. It's so sad. But if you join the collective people who have been harassed, it's a lot harder for companies to retaliate against an individual. Yeah the exact thing that you were talking about, bringing a group or bringing kind of this army to come and combat a lot of this together is really important. And I'm curious, is that kind of what led to your founding of Women of Silicon Valley? Could you tell us a little bit about the mission of Women of Silicon Valley and what was your motivation for starting it? Yeah, great question. So um, my motivation once again was dun -dun -dun, sexual harassment. <laughs> was interning at this startup in LA and just one of the men was super creepy. Once again, it was like a white dude who had an Asian fetish. And um, I remember just coming out of that internship. That was like the dissolution of my innocence. It's like I lost the virginity of my mind that tech would be this wonderful meritocratous place where as long as like I coded well, everything would be okay. And I don't know if you agree with me, ladies, but the first disillusionment is often the hardest hitting. I think tech has lost so many great minds because people had their first taste of uh, sexual, racial harassment and been like, I'm not going to do that for my mental health. I'm not going to do that for my personal being, which is good. Um, the problem is that people should not be um, turned away from these industries because it's going to be detrimental to their mental health. 
Your career choice should not be an ultimatum. And so when I was going through that sexual harassment, I had a mentor named Min Liu, who was also at Stanford. And she gave me some of the best advice to, to weather that storm. She told me, you know, you're doing all the right steps with HR. Um, kind of ridiculous you're having to do this for a 19 year old but just remember to water the flowers and cut the weeds that meaning um, prioritize people's presence in my life and make me feel full and energized and so based off that comment I decided what if we could scale stories and narratives in tech that made people like me feel full particularly women of color at the time, um, I think Humans of New York had just come out and a lot of people were doing spin-offs. And I said, why not create a spin-off called Women of Silicon Valley? So Min, my mentor then, who helped me get through that really rough summer, was our first feature. And from there, we started getting picked up by, interestingly, not a lot of tech journals, a lot of journals that appealed to, frankly, young women. So BuzzFeed, a lot of uh, journalism for the youth. and. I think that's really been the power of our platform is if we can intervene early stage with these people, with these young people, such that they don't um, eventually attrition out of tech, that would be so meaningful to like the tech landscape 10 years later. Yeah, absolutely. That definitely makes sense. And, you know, as you mentioned, you started Women of Silicon Valley in 2015 and the tech landscape has changed a lot since then. So. I'm wondering what are some of your learnings from the experience of creating Women of Silicon Valley and where do you see it going in the future? I will say when I first started Women of Silicon Valley, it was really important to me that we featured um, women and marginalized genders of color. And I remember every time we would try to post something about race, we had a lot of features who their, their primary oppressor in um, tech was white women. And when they speak really honestly about the truth of the way that white women oppress women of color, they would get so much backlash online. Um, we had to like moderate a lot of comments, a lot of white people telling us we were racist, for pointing out racism. Um, and a lot of just, you know, people in general not understanding that racism is about equity. It's about prejudice plus power. I will say it having been five years later when we post uh, features about race or talking about the effects of white supremacy in the workplace, we're getting less backlash. Um, if we do have people come in saying that we're being racist to white people by complaining about um, some of the oppression that they uphold, we'll usually actually have other followers comment like, no, that's, that's wrong, um, and provide some sort of allyship. And so my, my job as a moderator has become a little better. You're right, there actually hasn't been major changes that we've seen in the tech landscape and about a lot of these situations, they're still ongoing today, but I think it is really great that there are communities like Women of Silicon Valley to um, support other women that are going through these things. I think the increase of um, communities and channels of support, I think is really what's changing people's experiences as they go through some of these issues. Um, you wrote another Medium piece about keeping the receipts or tracking, rather, the impact of your DEI work and the discrepancy between tech companies investing monetarily in diversity initiatives 
but not necessarily supporting and rewarding their employees for dedicating time and labor towards it. Could you tell us about your own experience and how this has really played out for you at Google? You know, I've talked about this, especially with a lot of my non-Asian friends of color in tech, but it's like once you join tech as a non-Asian person of color, um, there seems to be this expectation from the tech companies that you are willing to put in a lot of your free time to do diversity initiatives, unpaid free time. Um, so you never get to just focus on your work. And even if you refuse to participate in all of these um, diversity programmings, your work is being materially affected by the racism, ableism, sexism at work. So there's no escape <laughs> and you're not getting um, compensated for it. And so I, I think when I first started full time, I was saying yes to all the inquiries like, will you? edit people's resumes for free, will you speak on this panel for free, X, Y, Z, um, because I really care. Um, you should be able to like say yes to all these opportunities and expect that um, the value that of work that you perform is recognized. But, you know, it, it soon became apparent that all this work I was doing was not factoring into my career advancement. Um, because I was doing so much diversity pr programming, um, I, I was being asked to do a lot of speaking by that time because Women of Silicon Valley had already gotten a lot of press. Um, we were actually helping Google recruit a lot of uh, people of color into the org because they were using our platform to recruit. I just somehow naively expected that because I was recognized um, online for my work that it would be recognized within uh, my career performance. And I was so, so wrong <laughs> because, you know, I, I got my first bad perf score back and I was just gutted by all the commentary basically that I was just meeting expectations. When in reality, I was doing a dual job. I was being a software engineer and I was trying to keep all these people in tech. And so um, one of the biggest comments was like, I was not producing as much code as my fellow coworkers. And I was like, of course, like a lot of my coworkers um, were not experiencing a lot of the racism, sexism, ableism that underrepresented people in tech do. And as a result, they didn't feel that, you know, internal onus to help others like them. Finding that I'm having to really pick and choose where I spend my energy knowing that, do I want to benefit this organization? Do I want to benefit this company with my presence and my help if they're not even going to compensate or recognize me? And I, you know, I am far from the only one who's felt this. There are, there are so many people who've done so much more work than I have and only to be, you know, under-recognized and under-compensated by the company. And there's a lot of like, articles on Medium coming out now around people saying this is why I don't do diversity work anymore because it's feeding into this systemic problem where people of color are doing more work for free and having like being punished for it career-wise. Yeah for sure and I can definitely relate to the idea of wanting to help out as a woman as a person of color but you also want to protect the value of your own labor and I love that because you saw the value of 
community work and DEI work is not included in technical promotion processes, you went ahead and created your own framework for evaluating your impact in this space with the goal of getting a 50-50 DEI and engineering job. And so I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, like you said, big tech has a long way to go within it, this, and it kind of feels like a lot of just throwing money at the problem, but not really getting down to the systemic issues. And so I'm wondering what are some ways that we can start to normalize valuing DEI work in the tech space and particularly what is the role of the tech companies in this? Yeah, I like the phrase throwing money at the problem because there's no, (laughs) it implies there's no like intentional desire to actually solve the problem. It's like as long as we throw enough money at it, this is going to look good from a PR perspective. I've had, I have so many friends who are really esteemed diversity consultants who are being hired by these companies to fix huge problems. Like, you know, why do no people of color want to work at our company? And, and the answers are obvious. It's, sometimes it's firing racist executives. Sometimes it's like doing the obvious and just paying your employees more and getting rid of like racist policies. But at the end of the day, these companies don't really want to do that. And so if they throw money into marketing, if they can present and perform diversity and inclusion, that's where they get their money's worth. Yep, certainly. I think we've seen that kind of idea over and over again, especially about how the DE&I work is obviously placed, the burden of it is placed on people of color. Uh, Maddie and myself have definitely felt that. And like you were explaining, a lot of what you've been doing is uh, a burden that you're taking that some of your male or white colleagues have not been taking on or don't necessarily feel called to. So how do we as tech companies, maybe their leadership, how can they make this a shared responsibility? How can they kind of encourage everyone to feel like they all have a hand in uh, diversifying the team, diversifying the company? Because there is no benefit, there's no reason for them to do it right now. How do we create a reason for them? How do we get everyone involved and how do we keep them committed to the same goal? Because right now, not everyone has a stake in it. Not everyone feels obligated to do it. And How do we get to the point that every single person does feel this obligation? Um, I have noticed that when people of the majority groups do DNI work, they often get more recognition and more applause than the people of color who do it. Like, you know, no one says, oh my God, thank you, Leah, for caring about diversity and inclusion. Thank you for starting this platform that has 75,000 followers. No one is saying that. Everyone's expecting me to kind of be the angry Filipina woman who cares about diversity. Um, But that's just a tangent. In in answer to your original question of like, why do people do the right thing? Because it's the right thing. And you can apply this to any um, social issue. I mean, like, I feel like probably throughout history for every social issue, there's been this question of, well, how do you make the oppressor care about the oppressed? Um, When the Philippines was colonized by Spain, it's like, how do we appeal to Spain to see like the humanity of the Filipinos that they are um, imperializing? And I think the answer has always been there is that if you actually cared, you wouldn't be doing it in the first place. And through time, The only way there's been accountability for the oppressors has been, um, I think, public shame, 
So, you know, I think there's like colonialism today and in this imagery has become less and less popular. There's more and more shame around it. And so like, you don't see as many people who are like, we're, we're still seeing a lot of people who are glorifying Columbus, but we're not seeing as many people take pride in it as like maybe 10 years ago. I think another part of it is just like legislature. Like I think Congress was woefully unprepared for big tech. Big tech has just kind of burgeoned ridiculously in the past 20 years. And there's like a real dearth of law around, I mean, specifically labor law around how these tech companies operate. And that explains why they're able to do a lot of obscene and heinous things. And so um, I'm really looking forward to the development, particularly of labor law, of lawyers of color, lawyers who've, you know, who've experienced this treatment, um, really writing into law how you can treat your employees. That's why I'm holding a lot of hope for 10 years, you know, I'm kind of like, maybe all this legislation will be introduced that's going to like, radically um, change the way that companies treat their employees, but I'm also probably being uh, too optimistic. Well, thank you again, Leah, for joining us. You've really given us so many insights into DEI work in terms of intersectionality and the path ahead. And I just wanted to end with this quote from your Medium piece on keeping the receipts, because I love this sentiment that, quote, DNI is not just a nice to have in my career, it is a must have for my retention. And I really hope that we get to a place, like you said, where companies and our white and male allies really buy into this idea as well. Um, and thank you to everyone listening for tuning into another episode of Compile Her. Make sure to check out the rest of our season two episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And follow us on Instagram at Compatter.